Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is just north of 6 o'clock a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 22nd of September 2020. This is episode 290 of Bitcoin, and we will be running the numbers. Operation Clockwork Orange at block 650,000. What is it? Ah. What you need to do if you're running a node or have otherwise or or otherwise have access to what the actual circulating volume of Bitcoin is, uh, post it. It's uh, at, at block 650, or 650,000, which is coming up you got to watch it because block times are a little small. We're calculating is going to be sometime September the 23rd. Uh, we're at, let me see. Actually, let me, let me, let me check something out here. Let me look at my node. We're at block, uh, uh, we're at 649,482. So keep an eye on it. But those of you who are running a full node can get access to being able to run said numbers from your full node. And I can't remember exactly what the uh, uh, executable is for uh, the command line interface to do that. It's actually really easy if you, um, after this show, I'll, I'll post, you know, make a tweet about it or something like that, that I can refer to in case any of you guys have num- um, questions, but at block 650, and you can always, I think you can, you can pretty much query any block. So it doesn't have to be exactly when, 650,000 hits. But if you do that and there's a whole shitload of people tweeting and and otherwise uh, hammering social media about exactly how much Bitcoin there is, it'll be, it it could be the largest audit of any financial instrument by more people than anybody has, than the world has ever seen. Nobody else can do this. You cannot, you cannot just by yourself as a private citizen audit the Fed. Okay, but you can audit Bitcoin and nobody can audit the ECB and nobody can audit uh, Bank of America. Nobody can nobody can audit any of these things. I can't audit BlackRock. I have to trust their SEC filings. I can't audit MicroStrategy. I have to trust their SEC filings. I have no idea. You know, I, I, I honestly have no idea the efficacy of any of those filings. Some of them I, I know have to be bogus. I don't. I mean, I'm not saying anything bad about MicroStrategy or BlackRock. I'm just saying we can't by ourselves as a borderless nation of people who have just been fed up with the system for so long. We can't audit anything, but we can audit Bitcoin. We can do that. And what started out as a fight between, uh, you know, the Ethereum people and Bitcoin, because Ethereum guys don't know how much Ethereum is in circulation, which is bad. It may have started there, but there's more, there's a lot more to it. I mean, I don't even have to worry about whether Ethereum, you know, this actually started out as sort of a bet, but not a bet, but Samson Moe on the Peter McCormick, uh, What Bitcoin Did podcast uh, was talking, they were kind of debating, he was debating Vitalik Buterin and just threw the gauntlet down, said, well, then screw it. Let's all audit and find out exactly how much we, we both have. And... Um, Vitalik has never really responded to that. So I, I don't think you're going to see anything out of Ethereum's, but it doesn't matter. I can put all that crap to the side and still have a facet, you know, still be fascinated with the fact that a whole bunch of people from Greece and Europe and Japan and Taiwan and Australia and New Zealand and the United States and Central America, South America, Canada, it doesn't matter. We can all audit the chain. We can all audit the same block. And we can all come up with the same number. That's the 
that's the theory anyway, and I don't think it's I don't think there's any problem with that. I think we're going to end up with the same number to very many decimal places. So we will have all independently audited exactly how much Bitcoin there is and show the world you can't do this with anything else. You can't do it with United States bonds. You can't do it with gold. You can't do it with anything. The only thing that's auditable in this particular way is Bitcoin. Now, moving on into other news, we have Craig Wright. <laughs> we have the clown show. Clown, the clown car is back in motion. <clears throat> let, me, let me just read a, a Beth Bloom, the federal judge in this particular case that is the Ira Kleeman uh, versus Craig Wright. Okay, uh, the court case has been ongoing for quite a while down in Florida. Well, I think she's had her fill. Uh, let me just read this omnibus order. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a 93-page judgment. So Judge Bloom apparently had quite a bit of time on her hands. Okay, so this is an omnibus order, which basically means we're done here. Okay, it's the, fir the very first paragraph of the omnibus order states, this cause is before the court upon defendant's motion for summary judgment, ECF number 487, or the defendant's motion, and plaintiff's motion for partial summary judgment on defendant's affirmative defenses, ECF number 498, or the plaintiff's motion, collectively, the motions. The court has considered the motions, all supporting and opposing submissions, the, re the record in this case, the applicable law, and is otherwise fully advised for the reasons set forth below. Defendant's motion is denied, and plaintiff's motion is granted in part and denied in part. So what the hell are they talking about? Well, Craig Wright wanted a summary judgment basically so that he wouldn't have to go to trial. And the summary judgment would have only, if, if granted, the summary judgment would have gone in Craig's favor, but there's, I don't, I just don't see how he thought that that was ever going to happen. So it had to have been a, like a stall technique or something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but Beth Bloom uh, basically put the kibosh on that whole thing and is going to force the entire thing to sit in an actual courtroom in an actual trial. So this entire case, all the way up until now, has been basically lawyers bitching at each other in front of a couple of different judges. Beth Bloom, for one, and I can't remember the guy's name who's actually hearing the most part. It's sort of like, think of it as an assistant federal judge, and I can't remember his name right now. But Beth Bloom is the presiding judge in the case, so she'll actually be the one signing off on you know pretty much everything, and she sure as hell signed off on this because she probably wrote this mostly in, you know, at least in part, but probably mostly just, you know, herself sitting in quarantine somewhere in Florida. So the, the very final page in, in, is the summary page and, and ends up being on page 93. Um, oh, where, where's my thing? Sorry, making sure that I'm, I'm back here looking at my, uh, my digital audio workstation to make sure I'm still recording. Uh, the very final thing that is said is there's three, there's three points. The defendant's motion is denied. The plaintiff's motion is granted in part and denied in part. The plaintiff's motion for leave to supplement record on defendant's pending motion for summary judgment is denied as moot. It's done and ordered on September the 18th, 2020. All right, so they're, they they're going to have to go to trial. And I, there's no more motions that are going to be filed as far as I can tell. I don't think there's any more stall tactics that can really be used if efficiently. So Craig's going to have to go to court. And I don't know exactly what we expect out of this entire thing because the way the entire court case is structured, as, as I've not surmised, but I've put a tinfoil hat on a couple of times and have suggested that this entire case is on purpose and that Ira Kleeman is, wor or, yeah, Ira Kleeman is working directly at the behest of Craig Wright and Calvin Ayer to sue Calvin Wright to bring this entire thing into a courtroom so that Craig can have the spotlight for as long as possible. Do I know if that's true? I have absolutely no idea. It's just a weird gut feeling because the way the entire court case is structured is that it seems like there's a no, there's a no lose scenario for Craig Wright, the way it was set up. He's, if he's, if he's found to be Satoshi Nakamoto, 
then he owes $500 million to Ira Kleeman or the estate of Dave Kleeman and, and, as, it's, as the case is written. If, if not, then he doesn't have to pay $500 million. But yet he's still been in the news with this, with this case for a long, 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 long time. So for, for that reason and that reason alone, I just keep thinking that this may have been all manufactured. I don't know because that would be a dangerous game to play to use the federal court in, in a machination such as that would scare the piss out of me, but Craig's a different bird. So anyway, Craig's going to have to sit in court, which should be fun. All right. That's going to do it for community news. Um, yeah, let's get into regular news at this point and let's start with, the S2F creator says that Bitcoin hash rate and difficulty surge like clockwork. Joseph Young writing this sometime this morning for BTC Times. The difficulty of mining Bitcoin hit a new all-time high on September the 20th, continuing its uptrend since the halving in May this year. Plan B, the creator of the stock-to-flow model, commented on the numbers, suggesting Bitcoin is on route to $100,000 with mining difficulty rising, quote, like clockwork. The S2F model predicts Bitcoin to reach 100,000 by late 2021 based on the scarcity and its halving cycles. Um, ah, good Lord. You don't want to do that. I clicked on something I shouldn't have clicked on. Over the longer term, the S2F model anticipates the Bitcoin price to hit 288,000, possibly before the end of 2024. Plan B explained, quote, S2FX model uh, estimates a market value of the next BTC phase Cluster BTC S2F will be 56 in 20 through 2024 uh, at uh, $5.5 trillion. This translates into a BTC price given 19 million BTC in circulation in 2020 through 2024 of $288,000. On May the 11th, the third block reward halving in history occurred on the Bitcoin blockchain. A halving typically causes the hash rate to drop because it decreases the incentive incentives miners have by half exclusive of fees a drop did happen with bitcoin's hash rate slipping from 121 exahashes per second to 90.4 exahashes per second between may 11th and may 27th of this year however since late may the hash rate has seen a has seen a v-shaped recovery and recorded an all a new all-time high on september the 19th <clears throat> now hovering at 139.9 exahashes per second, over 15% higher than pre-halving levels, according to data from BitInfo charts. The surging hash rate, despite the halving four months ago, also suggests that miners anticipate a higher Bitcoin price in the long term. Following Bitcoin's latest mine, mining difficulty adjustment, the hash rate has continued to climb as pseudonymous Bitcoin personality, hodl not noted, oh God, here we go with the space cat, quote, Bitcoin difficulty adjusted plus 11.3% yesterday. Did miners shut down their rigs uh, after this hit to hit to profitability? Nah, so far on track for another 7.7%. Yeah, thanks for cursing us, space cat. Freaking cat. Since the S2F model primarily relies on the hash rate and the fixed Bitcoin supply to predict the fair valuation of Bitcoin in the years ahead, the resilience of Bitcoin's hash rate and the mining sector buoys the prospect of S2F. Analysts have also noted that the current hash rate trend further strengthens the overall fundamentals of the dominant cryptocurrency. Marty Bent, editor-in-chief of Marty's Bent, said hash rate has been pouring into the network since last difficulty adjustment. Upward adjustment of 11.3%, new difficulty all-time high. The amount of computing power dedicated to protecting Bitcoin continues to grow. And again... <clears throat> We protect the chain. We do not, we do not attack the chain like Craig Wright, Roger Ver, all those people have done nothing but attack the chain. And they may very well get theirs, but we'll get to that later. Three Iranian power plants will soon be mining Bitcoin. <clears throat> Shara Malwa is writing this one for Decrypt.co sometime this morning. Three major power plants in Iran will soon offer their energy outputs exclusively for Bitcoin mining. The country's thermal power plant holding company, TPPH, 
announced on Monday as per a report on local news outlet Tehran Times. Irani, Irani, Irani power plants receive benefits and subsidies from the government on their fuel supplies, which are in turn used to produce power. And while they were earlier barred from mining cryptocurrencies, a new ruling in July allowed power plants to engage in the business albeit after gaining necessary government approval, licenses, and complying with the tariffs set for crypto mining. The TPPH now wants a slice of that pie. It said it will soon offer a tender for the electricity output of three power plants for the purpose of Bitcoin mining. Quote, the necessary equipment has been installed in three power plants of Ramin, Neka, and Shahid Montaziri, and the auction documents will be uploaded <clears throat> on the satataran.ir website in the near future, Mozen Tartslab said, he's the head of TPPH, Tartslab said that the sale of electricity to Bitcoin miners presented a new stable way of generating profits in the electricity sector. He added the three power plants will only use their expansion turbines for the purpose of mining Bitcoin, which uses natural gas to produce power and is cheaper alternative to liquid fuels like gas oil. Such turbines are not connected to the national grid, which distributes power across the country for commercial purposes and will be wholly used by the power plants to mine Bitcoin instead, he explained. The July ruling is said to be a savior for the country's electricity industry. Repeated price hikes and the obligation to supply electricity at stable prices to subscribers has created falling profits for Iranian power producers in the past, the report noted. Iran's adoption of Bitcoin comes at a time when the country grapples with a bleak economic outlook and international trade sanctions and trade sanctions imposed by influential governments such as the United States over its controversial nuclear power program. However, Bitcoin mining is providing them a new way to generate income, it added. And mining is a big opportunity. Iranian ministers said in 2019 that regulated Industrial-scale Bitcoin mining can pull in annually an estimated $8.5 billion. That's billion with a B. So it looks like the Iranians have had their fill of bullshit and are going in. Let's see what BTC Times has to say about Facebook. Uh, Obi Nwosu is writing this one for BTC Times. Says, welcome to Facebook land. You'll never, ever leave. And it was written sometime this morning. Welcome to the road of Bitcoin hegemony, a weekly analysis. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Facebook is your friend. George Orwell is in fashion again, and for all the wrong reasons. Rather than a warning from history, some people seem to have mistaken 1984 as a user manual. And no one more than Facebook, the company to which we willingly surrender our innermost secrets, Even the most technologically disengaged person knows that Facebook was never just a social network. Its business is building parallel worlds, one which competes with real life uh, for our attention and where the only price for playing is the complete surrender of our privacy. With last week's launch of the new online world Horizon, along with the brand new Oculus Quest 2 to explore it with, Facebook once again displayed its talent for getting us to love Big Brother. People can now play, socialize, and even collaborate through their infinite office initiative, all in full, high-definition, 360-degree virtual reality goodness. All you need is a headset, a Facebook ID, and of course, to register with your real name. Orwell got one thing wrong. It's not an omniscient and omnipotent party we need to fear, but private companies. In fact, if you told them in 1948 how much genuine people... How much genuine people... Genuine need people feel, God, how much genuine need people feel towards a corporation that has abused their privacy from the get-go, he'd have dismissed it as an improbable fiction. Despite warnings from those who built these monsters, we happily sleepwalk into the future where every click, every preformed thought will be recorded, analyzed, and algorithmed To change the way we think, feel, and do, Facebook even continues to work on Libra, a take on digital money that only someone with a degree in DoubleThink could consider a cryptocurrency. Anyone over the age of 30 has been witness to the creation of a new country, the world's most populous, powerful, and totalitarian transnational state. And like Big Brother, it came in the guise of a friend. Welcome to Facebook land. You will never, ever leave. As I mentioned on this week's Orange Pill podcast, the technical VR advances being made by Facebook are a welcome boost to the space. 
they're necessary and even welcome. However, in the same way Linux eclipsed Windows and Android surpassed, sur- surpassed iOS, eventually the world will need an open source alternative to tr- transcend Facebook totalitarianism as surely as we need Bitcoin to challenge the United States dollar hegemony. Luckily, alternatives like the one being used in this week's upcoming VR Magical Crypto Conference 2020 exist, albeit at a much earlier stage than the more centralized options. Mark Zuckerberg Zuckerberg was born in 1984. Has he read it, though? And if so, did he see it as a warning or a set of instructions? His instincts for centralization and omniscience suggest the latter. If you care about privacy, Facebook is not your friend. Everyone knows this instinctively, even while they plunge ever deeper into the digital rabbit holes the company creates. We are becoming what Orwell warned of, a mass who can never rebel until they are conscious and can only become conscious through rebellion. It's time to fight back. We have the weapons, the new powers of decentralization, censorship resistance, and open source development. All we need is the consciousness that there is a better privacy-preserving alternative to Facebook's dystopia. All right, so yeah, that's a warning, people. That book was a warning. It was, I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding Orwell, who he was, who his brother was, who his daddy was, probably. It doesn't really matter because that book reads like a warning. I don't think George Orwell actually meant it to be an instruction manual. I just, I just don't. But anyway, stupid is always going to exist in the space. Let's start off the stupid with meme token. <clears throat> which was, for whatever reason, added to Poloniex, and it doubled in price to $1,600. Just let the stupid wash over you. September the 21st, Jeff Benson writes for Decrypt.co and says, Today, cryptocurrency exchange Poloniex began listing meme in its DeFi innovation zone. Users can now deposit meme and trade it for Tether. This is no joke. Meme, a protocol that allows people to stake meme tokens in exchange for points that can be traded in for non-fungible tokens, has generated more than just Shiba Inu graphics. That's the original Doge, okay? Just so you know, the, the dog, Shiba Inu. Uh, it's got some serious, if speculative, interest behind it. After the announcement, its price rose at one point above $1,700, over a 100% increase from the previous day. Even before the Poloniex listing, meme was highly valued. Its price broke $1,000 on Sunday and hit a then all-time high of $1,342 early on Monday before dropping back beneath $1,000. After the announcement, it rose to a new all-time high of $1,708. It's been yo-yoing, but the general trend is late. Uh, of late is up. Oh my God. The big question is why? Sure, this would be far from the first decentralized finance token this summer to skyrocket in value, see Yam, Sushi, and Wi-Fi before it. These tokens, which had some utility doubled as speculative assets people could leverage to create earnings. Instead of farming yields, Meme is about farming NFTs. Whereas other decentralized finance protocols have rewarded their users with token that can be leveraged to earn interest, Meme gives them pineapple points. Jesus, that could be redeemed for non-fungible tokens. It's a truism that Bitcoin is valuable because it's relatively scarce with a final cap of 21 million BTC. Non-fungible tokens are even more scarce. Uh, until they aren't, people. Until they aren't. Whereas one Bitcoin can be replaced with another Bitcoin that is effectively the same, one NFT cannot be replaced one-to-one. They're collectibles. In this case, they're ownable digital assets on the Ethereum blockchain, from a video of a pineapple being treated as a crash test dummy to iconography of DeFi founders such as Yearn.Finance creator Andre Kronje, Mark Smith, founder of Namesake Domains and a member of the Telegram group that sprung up around Meme, explained that decrypt to decrypt that meme's growing popularity may be because it's rooted in the current DeFi moment. When values locked in, decentralized finance protocols have gone from under $1 billion in May to over $9 billion today. Quote, they seem to be releasing the cards based on the narrative of the week for DeFi. For example, after the Uniswap airdrops, they came out with the Hayden card, he said, referring to the founder of the Uniswap protocol. 
which distributed governance tokens to users last week. The rare Hayden Adams card, as opposed to a common one with a supply of 100, Smith said, sold in 10 minutes. Quote, these are mementos for being in this place and time, end quote, which is all fine, just as collecting rare art is perfectly acceptable pastime. But in the sped up world of decentralized finance, not everyone is in it for the lols. Some are just speculating, hoping the price will continue to increase. And as Jordan Lyall, the accidental godfather of the meme coin, told Decrypt last month when his joke concept was anonymously turned into reality, that price could fall fast along with some naive Rube's paycheck. Quote, the meme coin is a very risky type of investment. It's fluctuating all over the place. Pump and dump whales are all over it, end quote. So save your cat jokes. They might be worth something someday, but unless you're in it for the laughs, don't buy meme. Good advice. I'd stay as far away from it. Why? Well, because you probably can't even read the smart contract. Half of DeFi yield farmers can't read smart contract, says a survey. This is Alexander Behrens writing yesterday for Decrypt.co as well. A new survey reveals the yield farming trend in crypto is limited to a minority of users and that they may be taking on more risk than they realize. Oh, you think? Really? No. Sell, sell, sell. CoinGecko, a popular crypto tracking website, released today the results of a new survey of cryptocurrency users on yield farming, and it found that of 1,347 respondents surveyed in August, just 23% had participated in some form of yield farming in the past 30 days, but that more than 80% were at least aware of the term. Response from the online survey conducted via social media also revealed that 40% of users engaged in yield farming can't assess the risk of smart contracts, the automated code powering DeFi applications on their own, relying instead on auditors to identify risks from bugs or malicious actors perpetrating scams. I cannot tell you how bad that is. Trusted third parties are security holes. People understand that. <clears throat> but audits are time-consuming and expensive, leading many projects to forego them altogether and increasing the risk for DeFi farmers. Thus says CoinGecko, quote, all farmers should conduct their research before farming in any pools as there are more copy-paste yield farming tokens that could potentially expose them to a greater risk, such as code vulnerability or scams. It's an indication that few yield farmers are concerned with the considerable risk facing their crypto deposits, and fewer still are even able to correctly identify them in the first place. DeFi consists of decentralized applications on a blockchain that are focused on financial activities and processes, like earning interest from loans <clears throat> or through reward programs set up by the protocol developers for providing liquidity for token swaps. I just whoop-de-doo. I just, I don't know, man. I don't get it. Though fraught with variability, yields on invested capital have frequently topped $1,000 or 1,000% on an annualized basis. Yield farming, the practice of putting digital assets to work in DeFi protocols to earn the greatest possible return on their deposits is just one component. Uh, see, it's that sentence by itself that just is so disturbing. The practice of putting digital assets to work, okay, what work? In DeFi protocols, are they really decentralized to earn the greatest possible return on their deposits? Is it really a deposit? Is just one component. This is where this is where my problem with DeFi comes in. What so why am I wasting my time with these stories? Because it's here. It's here. You've you have you you got to know about what's going on here, man. It's just this, it's insane. So Continuing, of those who had tested the waters of yield farming at least once, 60% that they said that they were still farming, indicating that yield farming is developing at least some long-term staying power. Of yield farmers, more than two-thirds were between the age of 30 and 59, and more than 90% were male. CoinGecko noted, the survey results confirmed that yield farming is largely a niche activity, benefiting those with specific knowledge of both cryptocurrency transacting and financial calculations and metrics. Note that 90% of these people are male. There's a reason that women on average live longer than men. Just saying. Ethereum transaction fees are the cost users pay to send and receive tokens or interact with DeFi protocols on the Ethereum blockchain. 
have been eleva at elevated levels for weeks, sometimes costing more than 10 bucks for a single transaction. It may be surprising to learn then that 52% of the survey respondents said that they had started yield farming with less, one, less than $1,000 in capital. Many successful yield farming strategies involve consistent cycling through different DeFi protocols in pursuit of the highest returns offered at a given time. So high gas fees can quickly eat into profits and even starting capital if users don't plan accordingly. Yet, despite these operating costs, more than 90% of CoinGecko's yield farmer respondents said that they had achieved returns of 500% or more from their activities. In the final analysis, CoinGecko finds that while astronomical yields are likely to fade away from DeFi protocols, some form of yield farming is likely here to stay. Just like altcoins, guys, just like altcoins. <clears throat> as different projects vie for the attention of crypto users and their capital reserves. Okay, now this one, this sentence up here, where was it? Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, many successful yield farming strategies involve consistent cycling through different DeFi protocols. Consistent cycling through different DeFi protocols. That just reminds me of a video game and how to get the best, you know, the most experience points or the most gold by, I don't know, depending on the game, hitting different spawn points in order, or at least continuously, you know, going to a different spot. And it's, it really does reek a video game um, action here. And that, which is another thing that, the fact that you can explain DeFi to me all day long, but if the end of your argument is, but it's for token swaps, I don't give a shit. Why? I mean, why am I going to make any kind of yield on swapping one worthless ass, no utility having token for another worthless ass, no utility having token? This is not an explanation. This is hand waving, gaslighting. You're going to get rich, but more likely you're going to end up poor because unless you know when to jump off one platform and onto another platform, you're not going to do well. And right now, I think people are doing well, possibly because there's, you know, okay, there's a lot of these things, but I think a lot more are going to happen. And when you start really adding to the pile, it's going to get really murky really quick. And I, I just don't think people are going to be able to sustainably cycle through different DeFi protocols successfully. I, I mean, because at the end of the day, all this is for is apparently liquidity for token swaps. Who gives a shit? I mean, I guess the people that are getting 500% returns are going to give a shit until they lose 500%. You know, they go all in or, or chart, you know, at one point, I'm sure DeFi is going to take on leverage. Arthur Hayes. I mean, come on, it's going to happen. But whatever. All right, let's just, just let's run the numbers. You guys want to see what the markets are going to be doing this morning? Well, let's find out. I'm going to run over here to futures and commodities at CNBC.com. Let's start with energy. Looks like we're going to have a little bit of rebounds. Uh, natural gas is going to, is, looks like it's up in its futures by 2%. Brent North Sea oil is up 1.35%. West Texas Intermediate is up a qu three quarters of a percent. Uh, let's see what gold's doing. Gold looks like it's going to be coming in at $1,913 after losing quite a chunk uh, yesterday. It, but it's only up 0.136%. Silver, likewise, up 0.22%. Platinum is up a full point and a half, and copper is up a point and a third. So there's your metal stuff. Uh, indexes or indices. Dow Futures is going to be up scant. Um, it looks like it's going to be up 0.06%. S&P is going to be up a quarter. NASDAQ Futures are up past a half. S&P mini is going to be up 0.38, somewhere around there. And of course, those are going to fluctuate until the actual, more, uh, the ringing of the morning bell, which, my God, it's 6.38 a.m. We're a long way away from that, but we don't have to worry about it because we got real money to look at. Bitcoin took a nosedive yesterday, $10,465.47. dollars Looks like that's going to be our low. Is that going to be our low? Yep, that's going to be our low. No, yeah, yeah, that's our low. And our high is going to be somewhere around 
$10,488 at GDAX. 293,000 transactions in the last 24 hours gives us 13 or 12,241 transactions being made on average per hour with 3 mil. Oh my God, 3.6 million BTC has been sent over the last 24 hours. That's pretty high, man. I remember the days when I was like reading it, like, you know, 700,000, 800,000, maybe a million, but it has consistently been above 2 million BTC being sent in 24 hours over the last couple of weeks. That's interesting. That means that about 151,900 BTC are being sent uh, per hour. And average transaction value is 12, 12.4 BTC. That's $129,000, people. Uh, 0.05 BTC have been sent as a median transaction value, and that's about 530 Block time is now high. Looks like we've had a, our, we finally had a difficulty adjustment. Uh, 11 minutes and 31 seconds. Okay, so and the blocks are now at. Remember, we're zeroing in on uh, block number 650,000 for the uh, audit. Okay, we are now at 649,485. So it does look like it's going to come in on September the 23rd. We have a 0.5 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis, 67 BTC being taken in fees in the last 24 hours. We have hash rate basically going sideways at 139.2 exahashes per second. Um, difficulty is at 19315T. I'm not getting a, I'm not seeing a, a actual adjustment. So we'll have to look into that a little further. Um, let's see where else, what else? That's it. Okay. Ethereum 341, Bcash 214, Litecoin 43 and three quarters. BSV is 145 and three quarters. The Ethereum classic is at $5 and 38 cents. Dogecoin took it on the chin again, 0.0026 at 40,000 transactions. It does beat Ethereum classic in 24 hours and it does walk all over Bcash. But Litecoin has increased yet again. It is now sitting at 133,644 transactions being made in the last 24 hours. Can somebody please tell me what the hell's going on with Litecoin? God, Clark Moody is looking at a price of 10,488. There are 18,496,733.58 BTC in circulation. And again, I want all of y'all, if you can, to run the numbers on block 650,000 and post them to every social media outlet that you can find your, you know, put your grubby little hands on. Apparently it's going to take 21 blocks to clear 24,756 transactions. Total capacity of the Lightning Network stands at 1,105 and a half BTC. That's about $11.6 million in uh, capacity. Total nodes are 7,496, and that's 37,235 channels. Tor capacity has fallen uh, quite a bit. In fact, 40, we're down to 49.7%. That's 549 BTC on the Tor side of the Lightning Network. I don't know what precipitated that drop. Maybe it was just new people coming in for the regular Lightning Network, you know, starting cranking up a regular Lightning Network node. I don't know, but... We are back down under half on Tor being representative in the Lightning Network. That's going to do it for numbers. But before uh, the outro music for running the numbers is not going to be your standard fare. All right. This is going to be ETF, the song that was written and recorded by Phil Gibson. I got to meet and hang out a little bit with Phil at Bitblock Boom. Really nice guy, but he's also really talented. Give a listen. Let us follow the logic of things from the beginning, or rather, from the end, modern times. We are witnessing a complete riot against some class of experts in domains that are too difficult for us to understand, such as macroeconomic reality, in which not only is the expert not an expert, but he doesn't know it.
sovereignty Avail ourselves through bankruptcy Which bubble's about to burst This can't get Again, that's Phil Gibson. His song is ETF, and it's featured in Volume 6 of Citadel 21 magazine. There, That Volume 6 dropped, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before. Anyway, I promised, I had promised Phil that I wasn't going to play that tune until he had a, pre, you know, a chance to properly uh, present it in the publication. And now that that's done, people are you know freely able to pass it around and I recommend that you do pass it around because it's it's pretty good man I normally don't like I normally don't like quote unquote bitcoin songs but I got to tell you man this was done in a very professional manner and it was a lot of the the stuff about bitcoin was kind of couched you know in inside of pockets of explaining what the hell's going on with the economy and if it takes a song to get only one person to wake up and get out of this shit, then, then it's, it's well, well worth it. So continuing with part two of the morning roundup, we have this one out of crypto news by Simon Chandler in devs. We trust Bitcoin bugs die in secret, leaving altcoins at risk. Now this was written on September the 19th and I missed it, but you know, it is what it is. Let's get into it. BTC is regularly championed as the most secure cryptocurrency out there, but even it's vulnerable to the occasional bug, also meaning that BTC forks might be suffering from the same problem. This unavoidable fact was brought home at the beginning of September when a research paper revealed that Bitcoin harbored a severe denial-of-service vulnerability. The paper explains that the bug was discovered and patched way back in 2018, 
yet it represents the very first disclosure of this bug. Given that it was published some two years after the vulnerability's discovery and patching, it raises important questions about the disclosures in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, including the question of whether developers have an obligation to notify the public of dangers more quickly. According to developers speaking to CryptoNews.com, keeping software bugs a closely guarded secret, at least until a fix is rolled out, is is in the best interest of Bitcoin and its users. At the same time, crypto exchanges take steps to ensure that no developers with foreknowledge of bugs tries to profit from insider trading. How would they know? My God, this kind of ridiculous statement. Of course, they can profit from it. Having discovered the bug on June the 22nd, 2018, Purse developer Braden Fuller notified Bitcoin Core developers on July the 9th. Wow, that's a hell of a time span of 2018. With a patch being rolled out a day later by Matt Corallo, Vladimir J. Vanderleen, and other maintainers, no one else was notified, although the existence of the bug and other forks of Bitcoin, such as Decred, was discovered in July of this year, a fact which may have led Brandon Fuller and Bitcoin developer Javid Khan to belatedly publish their findings in September. However, while this suggests that the people involved may have been hiding vulnerabilities, and that they didn't follow due disclosure processes. Other developers and people involved in the crypto industry affirmed that things were pretty much done by the book. Quote, I'd say that if someone not working on the project came across a bug, they have a moral obligation to inform the code owner or maintainer as soon as possible via the responsible disclosures process, said Ben Chan, chief technology officer at BitGo, a major crypto custody company, end quote. This is exactly what Braden Fuller did in 2018. He notified Bitcoin Core developers as soon as he confirmed that the exploit affected the latest version of the protocol. He also notified developers using encrypted email, which again is standard practice. Quote, for Bitcoin Core, you can use security at bitcoincore.org and encrypt the message via GPG to the developer you prefer to contact, said developer, uh, Bitcoin developer Nicholas Dorier. Some may be tempted to fault Bitcoin Core developers for not publicizing the vulnerability after it had been patched. According to Dorier, explicitly publicizing a specific bug isn't necessary so long as the developers actually patch it and ensure that everyone updates their software. Quote, the devs fix the buzz with that bug without disclosing, and when the fix has been sufficiently distributed so that an exploit can't do any harm, there, then is it disclosed to the public. Sometimes dev can say, stop using this version. There is a critical vulnerability that we will patch in six months, he told CryptoNews.com. Soon, TM. Likewise, standard industry practice to keep knowledge of a bug to as few people as possible, particularly before it fixes develop, quote, as few as possible, agreed Dorier. And in general, developers prefer not to be aware of it to avoid suspicion if there is a leak. Fellow Bitcoin developer Brian Bishop also affirmed that announcing a vulnerability even after an update has been released may not be the best way to go and that not announcing it is standard in software development. Quote, they cannot announce the vulnerability because without enough time for users to upgrade, there would be greater opportunity for harm. Everything about that is standard and normal, he told CryptoNews.com. Disclosures issues or disclosure issues are complicated by altcoins. Now here we go, man. Here's the associated risks. Particularly those altcoins forked from other cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. On the one hand, publicly sharing a vulnerability may put fork coins at risk of attack, while on the other, not sharing bugs may leave fork coins exposed if another researcher independently discovers the same exploit. Quote, however, I think what people forget, especially about altcoins, is that these vulnerabilities don't necessarily get reported to all of the thousands of forked coins, says Brian Bishop. According to him, at some point, broadcasting security information to a group of thousands of other developers is equivalent or just as damaging as broadcasting vulnerability information to the general public. The consequences of this is that there are some projects that just aren't in the loop on security issues, he added. A point emphasized by the fact that Decred still had the June 2018 vulnerability two years later. Another possible risk is insider trading, as explained to CryptoNews.com by spokesperson for BitMEX. Quote, there is, of course, insider risk around the disclosure of bugs where, where, for example, people with knowledge of a vulnerability could short Bitcoin and then profit <clears throat> profit off the revelation 
of the vulnerability causes the network issues and crashes the price. And quote, BitMEX, a spokesperson, stated that the exchange takes these risks very seriously. Quote, that is why we are keen to attempt to remain on top of these issues by running many versions of Bitcoin and implementing automated alert systems, such as the unexpected inflation detection system. So there you go. So, so really, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is, is that when you fork Bitcoin because you're all pissed off and butthurt because of, I don't know, fees or you want to do something stupid, then you, you assume all those risks. This is your baby now, pal. You can't go crying to the people that you forked, you know, that you forked off from saying that it's pointing at them and saying it's your fault that you didn't tell us. Screw you. Go burn. You wanted to do this. I, I guarantee you, it's, it would seem to me that this bug is probably still in uh, BSV and probably BCH. I don't know. I mean, maybe they got it out of BCH because there's at least, you know, there has been at least one competent developer on that project. But BSV, I'd say attack the, the living snot out of it and see what happens. Fuck those guys. Hope they burn. Institutional investors say they'll buy more Bitcoin, says yet another survey. Andrew Hayward is writing this one on September the 21st for Decrypt.co and says a new report from cryptocurrency insurance company Evertos suggests that institutional investors plan to increase their focus on crypto assets in the next five years. Evertos surveyed investors that oversee some $78.4 billion worth of collective assets and 64% of the respondents reported that they expect a slight rise in crypto investments from the likes of pension funds, family offices, insurers, and sovereign wealth funds. Meanwhile, a further 26% of respondents believe they will, they will dramatically increase their investments in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies over the next five years. All told, that's 90% of surveyed institutional investors that expect some increase in crypto holdings in the next half decade. According to the report, the survey was conducted in July by market research company Pure Profile and included 50 total institutional investors split evenly between the United States and the United Kingdom. Asked why they anticipate increased exposure to crypto investments, 84% of respondents said that improved regulatory infrastructure will make them more viable, while 80% said that the expanding crypto market will improve liquidity. Furthermore, 76% added that they believe there will be <coughs> excuse me, more mainstream financial services companies and fund managers setting up or getting into crypto. And the same percentage said that they believe negative interest rates and yields on bonds will also push them into or further into crypto asset investments. Even so, there is still lingering concern for the surveyed investors about investing in cryptocurrency. Per the, per the report, some 56% of respondents said that they were very concerned about the lack of suitable insurance coverage options for crypto investments. Uh, sounds like a business opportunity to me. While 54% were likewise very concerned about the working practices and compliance procedures of crypto companies who provide services to institutional investors, ultimately the insurance angle is what Evertos is promoting here since that's the firm's bread and butter. Evertos raised $2.8 million in seed funding earlier this year to further develop its crypto insurance products in a round led by Morgan Creek Digital, of course. Quote, a lack of adequate insurance for the crypto assets market is clearly top of the list of concerns for many institutional investors, which is perhaps not surprising when insurers are only providing capacity of around $2 billion for a market that is worth between 250 and 300 or 250 billion and $300 billion, said Evertos president and COO Raymond Zenkich in a release. Quote, we are working closely with the insurance community to address this issue. All right. So insurance. <clears throat> Insurance is good, but in the future, where's your insurance going to come from? You lose the coins, and like if I lose, like, I don't know, let's say I lose a couple of Bitcoin or something like that, and I've got insurance on it, um, what are they going to pay me in? Because by the time that a couple of Bitcoin is worth hundreds of millions, you know, well, not hundreds of millions, okay, let's say it's worth like, I don't know, enough, like a couple of million bucks, enough that you're going to want insurance. You, you would like consider, uh, maybe I should get some insurance. Uh, what are they going to pay you in? Fiat? What will fiat actually look like at that time? Were they going to pay me in Ethereum? I won't accept that shit. Nope. Are they going to pay me in Doge? How are you going to, with what are you going to insure this shit with in the future? Right now? Yeah. You're going to insure it with fiat. But the more fiat degrades, 
then the more that with which you are trying to ensure things with, it becomes unpalatable. So at what, how do you ensure, how? how? That's going to be a really good question to answer for these companies going forward. But I guarantee you, there's, oh, they always say that there's two things that are ever present, and that's death and taxes. Well, it didn't take too long for insurance to become one of those three, okay? So Brazilian fund manager in NASDAQ is set to launch the world's first ETF. Now, I promised, oh, who did I promise? Let me see who said it. Probably not going to be able to find it. Uh, let me just, okay, yeah. Uh, Mexario has responded back when I put that story out into my, my Twitter feed. It, he says, or she, I don't know, it's not the world's first. Europe had Bitcoin ETFs for a long time. Okay, so that's, I'm just throwing that out there as a caveat to, you know, so that when I read this story, you know, if you're already screaming at me, then understand that I have been made aware that Europe apparently has some, some ETFs. I don't really care one way or another. This is just the news. <clears throat> you do it with it, with it, whatever the hell you want to do with it. But Samuel Haig's writing this one for Cointelegraph sometime early this morning. <coughs> COVID. Regulated Brazilian fund manager Hashdex is inked to deal with NASDAQ to launch the world's first crypto exchange-traded fund on the Bermuda Stock Exchange, or the BSX. The stock exchange announced that it had approved the Hashdex NASDAQ Crypto Index. Man, that's a mouthful. On September the 18th, revealing that 3 million Class E shares will be issued for trade on the platform. Cointelegraph Brazil confirmed the NASDAQ partnership and ETF with Hashdex's chief executive, Marcelo Sampaio. According to the local media outfit, outlet Info Money, the fund should be live and trading on the BSX by the end of the year. The report notes that Hashdex chose to apply with BSX due to Bermuda's crypto-friendly regulations. Exchange-traded funds offer a regulated and insured vehicle for institutional investors across or access exposure to commodities without holding the underlying assets. Why would you do that? While no further details regarding the ETF has been made public, Hashdex stated that the methodology and other key information concerning the product will be released by NASDAQ on the product's launch date. In comments to major Brazilian newspaper A Globo, Sampaio said the ETF's launch would advance institutional investment in the crypto sector. Hashdex currently manages $46.4 million worth of assets spanning four funds, including funds holding crypto assets. The firm's auditor is KPMG. Its primary financial institution is Silvergate Bank. And Hashdex's crypto asset custodians are Zappo, Kingdom Trust, and Volt. Earlier this week, former Goldman Sachs exec and fund manager Rao Paul predicted that the launch of a Bitcoin ETF in the United States was also imminent, stating, quote, I'm going to give you the biggest front-running opportunity of your life. They will get an ETF across the line. There will be billions of dollars that pour into it. Every pension plan will allocate some money to it. Every family office will allocate some money to it. And the more the price goes up, the more they will allocate. End quote. In recent years, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission has rejected proposals, proposals multiple proposals, by the way, for Bitcoin ETS from the Winklevoss twins and Wilshire Phoenix and NYSE broker ARCA. And I think each one of those had, has had multiple applications. So there's like six or somewhere between six or eight ETFs have been just rejected out of hand. Some of them, it took them like a whole year to figure out that they were going to say no. So it's always been an ongoing battle. Do I think an ETF is important? And I'm going to catch shit for this, but for the price, for getting more people to pour money into it? Yeah, pretty much. Because people like, you know, boomers that are retiring and they're talking to their, you know, asset managers or they're trying to figure out what to do with pension funds and the like and stuff like that. When they go to rebalance, they, they don't know anything about this. They're, they're trusting a third party, which is a security hole, to figure out what to do with their money and keep them safe. And it would be... Fiduciary, fiduciarily, is that a word? Whatever. It would be fiduciarily irresponsible 
for these fund managers to continue to turn a blind eye to something like Bitcoin. And because of that, that opens them up to li- that opens them up to certain liabilities that fund managers don't want to take. So if ETFs open up, I guarantee you they'll probably pour in. Will it be on day one? No, they'll just scale in over time. So don't expect a, a price wall to occur. All right. And they'll also buy shit OTC so that they don't receive slippage. So you may not see market buys. We had no idea what MicroStrategy was doing and they were doing their shit over months. They were scaling in for like, I want to say it was for over a period of seven months. Okay. So yeah, they're, these guys are not all that stupid. They're not going to just market buy as much Bitcoin as they can the day that they finally get an ETF approved. That's not going to happen. What will happen is that they will scale in. It will occur. The price will go up. It's just NGU, you know, NGU technology. Number go up technology is awesome. U.S. banks can hold reserve for stable coins now, says the Treasury office. Jeff Benson is writing this for Decrypt.co sometime the 21st. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, part of the U.S. Department of Treasury, today publicly confirmed that national banks and federal savings associations can hold reserves for stablecoin issuers. The OCC's interpretive letter was meant to reassure stablecoin issuers and their customers alike that the common practice of putting reserve funds into national banks can continue, provided that those coins are in hosted wallets. The OCC is charged with issuing bank charters and regulating banks' activities. That is all I'm going to say about that because that's all you need to know. So, okay, a couple of, a few weeks ago, the OCC, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, said it was okay to, to custody Bitcoin. And, you know, basically like crypto assets, like the, especially like the original raft of coins, Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum, Litecoin, what the rest of the shit coins. I mean, if it's not Bitcoin, it's shit coin. Let's get that straight. But now they've said just a few weeks later that they can, that banks can custody stable coins, which is a different kind of a different animal. I, I don't really use them because I don't trade. But now they've said, okay, you can do stable coins. Now, the issue behind this, both of these letters is the fact that they don't just wake up one day over there at the OCC and stroll into the office with a Starbucks in hand saying, you know what? Today would be a damn fine day for an interpretive letter on stable coins. No. Interpretive letters from the OCC are responses when enough people hammer down their door asking a specific question. So first, the specific question is, can we custody this shit? Can we custody Bitcoin? Can we do that? And enough people were knocking on the bank's door asking that question or the OCC's door asking that question. And the OCC said, shit, you know, at this point, we've actually got to answer this question. Hence, they drafted the interpretive letter on what they can do with Bitcoin. Now, weeks later, after that interpretive letter came out, banks were asking the question, well, then what about stable coins? And enough of them yelled and screamed and bitched and kicked and raised the hell enough that the OCC woke up today and said, we're going to have to address this crap. So now, just weeks after saying that Bitcoin was okay, the OCC is now like, I'm basically, it's like, I, I'm just seeing, it's like seeing a giant just overpower some poor, some poor dude in a fight and just slowly crush them over time. That's exactly what's happening here. Um, let's see. Is there anything else of note? Uh, you know, I think I'm just going to go ahead and stop right there. We are over an hour and that's my target time. The rest of this, eh. I mean, unless you want to just want to know Chamath Palihapatiya's social capital holds Bitcoin from 2013 amid talk of public listing. Okay. That's a good one. I might save that one for tomorrow. Uh, but yeah, this... <clears throat> Chamath, uh, social, social, uh, capital holds Bitcoin from 2013. Let that sink in. Chamath has had been on both sides of the fence of Bitcoin, right? I mean, I'm in so far as he, he's, he's critical of it, which is good, but it's clear that, that he's holding it at this point. You're going to see more of this. You're going to see more companies, uh, like basically come clean. They're going to come out of the closet saying, um, I'm really rich and I've been around the space in legacy finance for a long time and I own Bitcoin. It's going to be like a fucking AA meeting, man, and it's going to be glorious. So with that, that's going to wrap up the morning roundup. 
Sorry, guys, no daily train wreck for you today, but I do have a joke. Dad says, my email password got hacked again, and that's the third time I've had to rename the cat. For those of you who are security conscious, you'll understand that joke. Otherwise, I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.